The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Joshua Venee. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look at your word and your instruction, especially here on our life as as sexual beings, we pray that you will give us uh, insight into that and uh, you will uh, ever guard our steps and uh, direct them to the paths of fulfillment that you have given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So I had a handout there. I think they may have run out, so share with those around. But we're looking at this morning Proverbs chapter 5. One of the um, instructions in this first part of the book of Proverbs, uh, especially against the wiles of the adulterous or strange woman, as we'll talk about, but then the joys of, uh, of marriage. So... This, uh, this translation is uh, compiled from a few different sources, so it, uh, um, it uh, maybe is a little more colorful at times, but let's read it together. Hear, hear God's word, Proverbs chapter 5. My son, listen carefully to my wisdom. Give ear to my good sense, so that you may keep your wits about you, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of the strange woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But what she brings about is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps hold fast, hold fast the path to Sheol. As for the path of life, lest she ponder it, her ways wander, she does not know. And now, sons, listen to me, and do not turn aside from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of an outsider. And at the end you groan when your flesh and body are spent, And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or give ear to my instructors. How quickly I've become an utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing streams from the midst of your own well, Your springs break forth abroad, canals of water in the streets. They are for you alone and not for strangers with you. May your fountain be blessed so that you take pleasure from the wife of your youth. May she be a loving doe and alluring female ibex. May her breasts quench your thirst at all times. May you stumble about always in her loving. Why should you stumble about, my son, with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of an outsider? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, 
and he ponders all his paths. His iniquities ensnare him. He is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he stumbles about. Now, our text here in chapter 5 is, is part of that first part of the book of Proverbs, chapters 1 through 9, that uh, we usually call the prologue, where it's given as the instructions of a father to a son. And, uh, and then we get after that the Proverbs proper, maybe, the sentence Proverbs and other longer ones in chapters 10 and following. And as you read this prologue, these first chapters, what's, what is the father trying to teach his son? Well, as you read it over, the main points don't seem that complex. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Um, some very basic things. And yet as you read it, he continually presses on the son the need to strive and persevere in the pursuit of this wisdom. And why is that? Well, Fox, one commentator, he says, the reason that the wisdom the author is seeking to impart is at once difficult and obvious is that it is not reducible to the book's precepts, i.e. just don't commit adultery. The author is aiming at a higher and harder goal, wisdom as power, an inner light that guides its possessor through life. And so he says the focus of these chapters is on the temptations that men face from other sinful men and seductive women. He says seduction is the main, indeed, almost the only peril warned against in the lectures, these, this prologue. And the wisdom needed is the ability to discern right from wrong, but also the desire to do it, to pursue the right. And so this wisdom is really moral character, and that's why it's difficult, because moral character comes down to desiring the right thing. And how do you teach desire? Uh, and, uh, and so he, Fox continues as he thinks of this prologue, what's, what is the, uh, the author doing, the father doing here as he, as he seeks to mold the desire? Um, well, I think it's helpful that he does more than quote God's law. That's what we'll look at. And he does more also than like what Heidelberg question and answer 86 goes into, why do we still do good out of gratitude? Those are important things, but he does something else. Right? Instead, what we see him do is he focuses on act and consequence in vivid detail, compelling detail. Fox says, the father's pedagogical rhetoric aims at guiding desire, fostering the right ones, suppressing the wrong ones. He strips matters down to essentials and assigns to wisdom one primary function, to fortify its possessor against temptation. Um, the youth addressed in Proverbs is about to come into an independence and adult responsibility, yet he lacks maturity and good sense. His moral cast is not yet hardened. The author knows that young men, that they're terribly vulnerable 
to peer pressure and their own raging libidos. And he's aware that the longings for camaraderie and sexual relief tug at them with a fearsome power that can easily overwhelm their still precarious powers of reason and self-control. And thus the lecturers seek to help young men withstand these drives and channel them to proper uses, namely concern for a good name and marital sex. The teacher seeks to connect deed with consequence deep in the son's mind so that he not only knows the principle of reward and punishment, he feels it. He feels it. So I think Fox is helpful in that. Um, one last comment from him. He says of the father that he speaks to the budding adult in a confidential man-to-man -to -man tone, alerting him to the pull of greed, conformity, and above all, lust, with a vividness that reveals his own nagging susceptibility. Right? He knows his own failings there, too, or his own weaknesses to their attractions. The wise man is not devoid of such desires, and he doesn't demand that his son be. Um, and I think that's important as we go there. So now to turn to our passage, we'll really break it up just into two parts, fleeing seduction, um, the way it begins, and then finding for, uh, satisfaction. Uh, and, and so the... The father starts out exhorting his son to listen carefully, stretch out his ear uh, to his wisdom, his, his good sense, his understanding. Right? Something more than just hearing, it has to become internalized. And why, why is that? Um, right? We get these two things there in verse 2, to keep your wits about you that you may guard knowledge. Um, as they're often translated, discretion and knowledge. They are what's very much um, key for the youth. Proverbs 1.4 says that, that wisdom gives knowledge and discretion to the youth. And uh, the, uh, the term there, discretion, or what I've translated this, keep your wits about you, it often refers to a plan, uh, whether good or evil, uh, but it's that internal ability to think clearly about a situation and know what is of benefit and uh, how to go through it. Uh, to not be carried along by the circumstances, uh, to see these conse consequences. And so I think keep your wits about you very much captures that. Uh, and if you can do that, then you won't be tossed to and fro justifying anything in the situation. Your lips, they won't just babble, but there will be knowledge there. And why is that important? Well, because there is something that comes along. A good-looking, sweet-talking woman. We know what it does, to what she does to a man. We've all seen it in movies, on TV shows taking a perfectly sensible guy and turning him into a babbling idiot uh, as she comes along. We are very susceptible to feminine charms. And so the father is telling his son he needs to learn how to keep his wits when that happens. When he's faced with this, uh, when this woman comes up. Now I think it's important he's not condemning 
that aspect of what women do to men. Uh, that is not at all what it is, but it's the wrong one. Um, because this same terminology, the lips of the strange woman, they drip honey. In uh, Song of Songs, that's used of the lover talking of his beloved. Your lips drip honey. This is a good thing. But it's wrong. It's out of place here when it is this strange woman. The sexual allurement, smoother than oil, that's not a bad thing. But here, it's out of place. Now, this strange woman, uh, this term, it's just the, the word for strange or, or can be translated foreign, forbidden. Um, there's been much discussion. Who is this? Uh, is, it, is it really a foreigner as far as nationality? Uh, it's tied later on in, in verse 20 with another word for uh, foreigner, um, or I translated there outsider. Uh, but that doesn't seem to make sense here. Uh, instead, the term can be for those outside of the family, the circle of the clan, the, the immediate family. And thus here, as it speaks about sexuality, it's, it's any woman that's outside of the proper bounds of a man's sexuality. It's really any other woman than his wife. That's the strange woman. Uh, and so that um, is it. Now, in Israelite society, most of the time, it was probably another man's wife. And as we look elsewhere in Proverbs, where we have similar exhortations to us, it is always of somebody who is married. Um, in chapter 5 here, we don't hear what the honeyed words are. We could look to chapter 7, and there we get more of a demonstration of that, what, uh, um, what she says. But, but the brief imagery shows the son that this is powerful. This is alluring. This is very desirous. But you need to know where it ends. You need to know those consequences. Uh, and so that's what the father goes into in verses 4 through 6 giving these consequences in very general terms there. And as we read through them, we think of more cosmic or, or uh, um, more long-term consequences um, uh, that, uh, that these might be eternal terms, as it talks of death and Sheol, the path of life. Uh, but based elsewhere on Proverbs, it's, it's probably still characterizing uh, this period of life here on earth. Her sexuality, this strange woman, she'll take you away from what is good and pleasant in this life. There will be these consequences. Sexuality is this good thing, but taken out of proper context. It doesn't lead to fulfillment. It doesn't lead to happiness, to the pleasure God created it for. And I think we see that as we go then into 7 through 14, we're now more specifics of what this leads to are mentioned. Uh, he talks now to his sons. He uses the plural there. Don't turn aside. Um, but what you do need to get away from is this woman. He says that's the surest way to avoid this strange woman. 
Stay away. Don't go near her door. Don't pretend that you're stronger than you are. Know the power of sensuality and don't flirt with danger. And then he gives the reasons why, and this is maybe the toughest place to know exactly what it's talking about here, but it basically says you'll, you'll lose most everything in life. It uh, talks about all of these individuals, strangers, the cruel one, outsiders, and all of these terms uh, are uh, uh, masculine, and, uh, and they're probably referring to consequences of adultery in Israel and, and how it would lead to loss of property and possessions and other things. Um, we could say in general, he loses the family farm. And what is he then reduced to? Right now we hear him cry out. And you say, verse 12, or go at verse 11, at your end you groan when your flesh and body are spent. You look back at your life, at what has happened, the shipwreck that's been made of it because of your indiscretions. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers give ears to their instructors. Right? It's brought about bodily uh, um, material ruin, but also of, uh, of reputation. Verse 14, how quickly I've become an utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. He's crying out, how could I be so stupid and not listening as he's now in disgrace? But the father makes a jump. Now that he's brought the son to what the utter ruin of a life of fornication would bring, he dives without introduction into the alternative. And the answer to sexual temptation is not emptying of desire. It's not the monastery. It's the bedroom. It's not a condemnation of feminine wiles, but their celebration in marriage. Uh, and so in verses 15 through 18, he uses a number of images referring to these sources of water, a rather obvious metaphor that is finally then made explicit there in verse 18 as take pleasure from the wife of your youth. And the one difficulty in them is how to fit verse 16 in, whether it's portraying something good or bad. Uh, as interpreted as something bad, verse 16 is often taken as contrasting with 15 and 17. There you have drink, from your own cistern, flowing streams from the midst of your own well. And then 16 is taken as, instead of being out in the public with your sexuality, instead of pursuing it elsewhere, abroad in the streets. Um, and uh, 17 is then taken as a command, right? They should be for you alone, uh, not for strangers with you. And you'll find most in English translations go that way making verse uh, 16 more into a question, uh, even though there aren't any, any uh, indicators of that there, a question or a negative. But I'm convinced by those who argue that verse 16 is actually more of a positive thing. Uh, it's again, as it refers to the wife in all of these images of water, it's talking about her great abundance. 
These images of water, they get better and better. A cistern, right? Something dug out to catch rainwater. I'm a sure source, but not as good as a well that's fed by underground rivers and streams, right? Flowing water in a good well, but still not as good as an actual spring breaking out with canals, channels in the streets. That, that is the abundance, the abundance that is found in a wife. And thus, verse 17 isn't a command, but, but this blessing, all of that, it's for you alone. It's not to be shared with strangers, strange men. And so then the father pronounces this blessing on the wife. May your fountain, right, in that imagery again of the water, may she be blessed in 18. And then the latter part of 18, often taken as an imperative, I think, which would, would fit too, but I think it's better to take it here as a result, um, an indirect volative uh, for those of you looking at your Hebrew. It's if she is blessed, right, calling on this blessing from God, may your fountain be blessed so that this will happen, so that you will take pleasure, you'll take joy in, take pleasure from the wife of your youth. And verse 19 continues on in that. Uh, and we, uh, may she be, we probably should assume that's there, this, right, this dough of loves, Love-making dough, lovely dough. This graceful ibex may be graceful in that sense of alluring ibex, attractive ibex. And then he goes back again to the idea of drinking, though here something a little bit stronger than just water. May her breasts quench your thirst at all times. May you stumble about always in her loving. Uh, often the translation goes at the end there, intoxicated. That idea of staggering, staggering about. Right? The allurant, uh, the alluring nature of woman is a great thing in the marriage bed. And so then the father, he asks in verse 20, if you have all of that at home, why are you going elsewhere? Why would you ever look elsewhere? Why would you stagger about with strange women? Why would you embrace these foreign women? Now, I don't think he has any naivety on marriage always being easy, being the easy answer to this. We ought to remember that most Israelites probably had arranged marriages at a very young age. They had to very much learn how to love each other, uh, to look to each other. Um, there may even be here a bit of attack on polygamy. Enjoy the wife of your youth. Don't keep your eyes roving round about uh, looking for another. But the father, right, despite all those difficulties that I'm sure he knows of, he's praying for this as that blessing, that blessing that God made it to be. He knows marriage takes work on both sides, but sex, um, he knows it can be one of those most common areas of conflict. 
but he also knows it's worth it. It's worth cultivating. It's worth working at. It's worth making that marriage bed that place of mutual pleasure because it will guard both of you, both of you from temptation. And it will be a lot of fun. And then he ends at the end there, and he says in verses 21 through 23, with these more general instructions on sin that also very much apply to sexual sin. For a man's ways, they're always before the Lord. What you think you do in secret as you hide is not in secret. God knows. God ponders. And those secret sins, they usually don't stay secret. Instead, they come out in our lives. There are consequences. They wreck homes and everything else. Iniquities ensnare him. They hold fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. Stumbles about, not with his wife, but because of his folly. So as we hear these words and apply them to ourselves briefly, we know that the issues are the same, even if some of the circumstances are different. What things drip honey for you? Promise and even give you some level of sexual pleasure. What's the cost? Adultery is still very much um, rampant in our culture. Uh, also, various forms of infidelity. But maybe most different is the strange woman may not be your neighbor's wife in the flesh. She may be the one on the screen. And in our culture, adultery, it doesn't have the same social stigma as in Israel. Certainly sexual promiscuity does not, but the consequences are still there. Ask anybody who's gone through divorce, as usually ends up happening. Costly, painful, um, even especially if there's kids involved. And even those casual hookups, whether real or with images, they have very lasting consequences. Emotional pain, emptiness, guilt, this is not the way of life. This is not the path of life. And we all know how often sexual sins have destroyed a pastor's ministry, leaving him and the church in disgrace. So both men, um, and we could say that even though this passage is given from the father to son, it's pretty easy to see that it applies also to daughters. The daughters, too. Sexual temptation may be different, but it's still real, as are the consequences. So both men and women, we need to look to the marriage bed. It is this great gift, a place for enjoyment, passion, love. It's been, but it needs to be this part of greater intimacy that you share in the rest of life. And it needs to be something cultivated. Wives may not always feel that they're this abundant source as Proverbs speaks about. They may not always feel like that lovely doe or ibex, uh, but this is a blessing from God that they need to pray for. And husbands often have a very big role in that, building up their wives, bringing out their inner lovely doe, alluring ibex. 
through their care and love. But I know that some of you, you're not married yet. And so your sexual passions and desires, they don't have an appropriate place yet for expression, fulfillment. Some of you may be gifted with singleness, as Paul talks about, but I imagine most are not. And so you, uh, you need to now guard yourself, join with other brothers, um, or you sisters join together for that mutual support, but, but also pray for a wife. Proverbs says in 1822, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And that is true. And it's one of those things I'm most anxious about my own children, that they find godly spouses as they grow up. But lastly, I, maybe the most amazing thing, as we place these instructions from Proverbs within the canon of Scripture, is that God, before whom all of this transpires, who sees all, ponders all, is that God who loves sexual sinners, who has loved them so much that he has provided a way of salvation. That doesn't mean there won't be consequences in this life, but it means that God can take you, a broken and, uh, right, one who's made a shipwreck of your life, he can make you new again. And he can give you a sure and lasting hope. So those who have done that, they're called to turn in repentance and faith to their faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has given his life to pay for such sinners as us. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, your law and your wisdom and your instruction, they very much, they show us our need for Savior, but they also build us up as, as, as we see what we're now called to, to walk in the joy of the freedom that we have. And so as we think of how it is you've made us sexual beings. We pray that we take these words, internalize them, that you use them when we are faced with temptation to keep our wits uh, so that we may, uh, we may be spared this pain, this agony uh, that comes about because of sin. So guard us from that. May we know our ways are always before you. May that constantly be on our mind. But may we also know that we can always turn in repentance for sin that we have committed and that you by your spirit continue to make us new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2016, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.